One more uh, just quick announcement uh, that we as a pastoral team wanted to bring to us as a church this morning uh, before we get stuck into our passage for today is about baptism. You see, I think baptism is something that is easily overlooked. It's easily overlooked for us as Christians, but it's something that the Bible teaches is of huge significance. Just before Jesus uh, finished his ministry on earth and ascended, he said this, he said in his parting words to his disciples, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. You see, Jesus, in some of his final words, encourages us and leaves with his disciples that baptism is one of the uh, essential things that we do as Christians after we put our trust in him. You know, if you've put your trust in Jesus and made a decision to follow him, uh, we just really want to encourage you to be baptized as a basic application of God's word. You know, I think there's two temptations for us when it comes to baptism. I think the first uh, temptation is towards the fear of man. Uh, maybe you grew up in a, or uh, live in a family that is non-Christian and people have different faiths, people have uh, different backgrounds and you have unbelieving friends and family and you think, what will they think? What will they think of me if I get baptized? Maybe for you, uh, you've grown up in a different tradition. You were baptized as a child, but you're convinced that the Bible teaches that baptism is a response to Christ, but you're afraid of your parents and your relatives, and you're afraid of disappointing them. I just want to encourage you. We want to encourage you. We build our lives on this word, and we seek to faithfully follow Jesus. And if that either of those describe you, I want to encourage you. You know, following Jesus sometimes has a cost, but we want to be building upon this and not giving in to the, to the fear of man. But secondly, I think for some of us, we just dismiss its significance. We, we just say, oh, well, come on, you know, it's no big deal. We, why do we get all worked up about baptism? And yet it's one of Jesus' final words to his disciples. It's something of great significance, and I think we do wrong when we just lightly dismiss it. So I want to encourage you. If you haven't been baptized, you're missing out on something precious, a great celebration, a powerful witness. And I just want to encourage us as a church, we need to build our lives on God's word. So if that's you, we're planning on having a baptism service on Easter Sunday. Um, We're celebrating the raising of Jesus from the dead. We're going to try and baptize some people, preach the gospel. It's going to be awesome. So if you're interested, come and chat to me. We'd love to talk to you more. If you have questions, come and chat to me. Um, We'd love to help you think about baptism and um, what that might look like for you. Well, we're continuing on now uh, in our series on Mark. And so if you have your Bibles uh, with you, open them up to Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Now, just by a way of refresher, it seems like so many months since we've been in Mark. So, So let's just get up to speed. I'm so excited to be back here and walking with Jesus, um, walking closely with him, finding out more about this great man, this our God and King. And um, I just want to refresh us a little bit on what's been happening. In chapters 1 through to 5, Mark's been really uh, answering the questions uh, of the disciples in the boat who say, who is this then that even the wind and sea obey him? That's the question that Mark's been answering up to this point. We see this Jesus who in chapter 1 has authority to teach. All the other people before him uh, uh, say things like, in God's name, or they quote other people. But Jesus just speaks God's word and people are amazed by him. We see that he's got authority to forgive sins in that amazing scene in chapter 2 where the man is lowered down from the ceiling and he's, he's a paralyzed man. And instead of saying, you know, you're healed, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He has authority to forgive sins. In chapter 3, we move on and see that that Jesus has authority to heal the sick, and we see him healing people of all different varieties of illnesses, including a man with a a paralyzed hand. 
We move on to chapter 4 and we see in that scene with the disciples in the boat how Jesus just by his word calms the seas and they're still because he has authority over nature itself. Even the winds and the waves uh, obey him. In chapter 5 then, previously where we left off, Jesus had been in the region of the Gerasenes with that man possessed by 6,000 demons. And just at his word, he casts those demons out because he has authority over the powers of Satan. And lastly, today, uh, we see that Jesus has even greater authority still, and that is authority over life and death itself. And that's what we're going to see in our passage. So why don't we read from verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came out one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had ended, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the, the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we want to thank you again for your word. It's a word of power. It's a word of authority. And it's a word about Jesus. A word for us. Lord, I just pray that you would help us just this morning to see him with fresh eyes. To see the power and might of our great king we might worship him with all we have and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you should have gone to Specsavers. It's a uh, great series of ads uh, that runs frequently on the television, and I'm, I'm sure for many of you, you're familiar with it. There's the classic scene of the guy playing volleyball and doing the slam down strike, and it turns out to be a seagull, right? And uh, there's that that scene where there's the lifesaver who's like going out to swim and rescue someone who's apparently uh, in distress out to sea and drags back a seal, right? And the line is, you should have gone to Specsavers. And I, I love this series of commercials on TV because I kind of feel like I deeply uh, identify with them and it kind of illustrates my life. Um, you may have heard uh, me share 
back at Christmas, my experience at Dave and Pris's uh, wedding, where I uh, thought I saw Hannah, a girl who used to go to this church, who was a good friend, and I, I came right up to her, to, so I thought, oh, so great to see Hannah, and uh, came up to her, and of course I'm not wearing my glasses, and go to, to embrace and give her a hug, and just as I have my arms around and going for the kiss on the cheek, she turns, and lo and behold, it's a stranger who I don't know, and awkward, awkward, awkward. I'm so sorry, I thought you were someone else. And, and the point is, the ad and my experience, it illustrates the consequences of failing to, to see clearly, doesn't it? When we fail to see clearly, we, we respond to people and situations in the wrong way. And it can lead to, in my situation, great embarrassment and, and pain. Um, but the point is that if we fail to see Jesus clearly as well, if we mistake his identity we also relate to him in the wrong way. You see, uh, many people, when they think of Jesus, when they see Jesus, they see, you know, bearded Jesus with the lamb. It's Mr. Nicey-Nicey Jesus. And that's great. Um, If you see Jesus like that, Jesus who's a nice guy but powerless, you'll be interested, but you probably won't put your trust in him. If you see, or other people see Jesus as kind of the stained glass window Jesus, you know, a teacher with lots of wisdom, but from the distant past. And if that's Jesus for you, you probably won't listen because you won't believe his advice is relevant to your life. Some people see Jesus kind of as the religious zealot with lots of morals. And if you see Jesus that way, you'll probably find yourself suspicious about following him and you'll question if it's worthwhile. But what if we could see Jesus clearly from the Bible? What if we could see that he was gracious and kind and merciful? More, he was God himself holding the balance of life and death and able just with a word to to bring people back to life. How would we respond to him then? How would we treat him then? And that's what this message is all about. Power over life and death. That's the title. And really three points, but one simple message for us this morning, and that's that we'd draw near to the all-powerful Son of God who responds with grace to even the weakest of faith. That we would draw near to the all-powerful Son of God, that we would see Him and draw near to Him because He responds with grace to even the weakest of weak faith. That's what we're going to see in this passage. You see, this passage is primarily about the power of Jesus Christ. It's primarily about a revelation of his interaction or his power through his interaction with two different people. And what we see as we look at this interaction is that it's not the strength of their faith that causes God to act, but the object of their faith. That's Jesus. And why that's relevant for us, I think, is because for many of us, we find ourselves sitting here and at times thinking about our doubts and our faithlessness and our failings and thinking that somehow they prevent us from being heard by God. You know, if only I believed enough, then God would hear and he would respond to me. Well, if that's you, someone who sometimes questions whether or not you are the obstacle to God working in your life, if that's you, I think God's out to encourage you. He's going to encourage you through his word to us this morning. So three points. And our first point is simply two desperate people. Point one, two desperate people. You see, as we previously saw uh, in Mark's gospel, Jesus heals this man with 6,000 demons. And for the only time in Mark's gospel, he, he doesn't tell them to be quiet. He says, don't come with me, but go and preach the gospel to these people. Tell them about me. And then Jesus jumps back in the boat and he sails across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, probably probably somewhere like Capernaum, we don't really know for sure, somewhere near his hometown because that's where he's going to be next week. And, and Luke tells us that there's crowds of people waiting for him. And that's where our story kicks off and we meet our first person. Read with me verse 21 and 22. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, 
Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. This first person we meet is a ruler of a synagogue. His name's Jairus. You see, a ruler of the synagogue in Jesus' day was kind of like a lay elder administrator, like a church administrator. They would manage the facilities, the building, the upkeep and security. They'd organize the worship services on a Saturday or on a Sabbath. They'd, they'd organize the scrolls and the scripture readings and prayers and preachers. They'd organize all that sort of thing. And here Jairus is a member of the religious elite. He's the in crowd. He's a respected community member. But what we find out is he's desperate. He is absolutely desperate. You see, Jesus has already established a bit of a reputation and he's a controversial figure. He's widely, uh, widely rejected by the religious elite. In chapter 3, 6, we see as Jesus performs this miracle healing that man's hand on the Sabbath, the leaders go away and what do they do? They plot to kill him. So already people are amongst the religious elite very suspicious of Jesus. And Jairus hears that Jesus is coming and there's this huge crowd gathered away and he pushes through the crowd and he falls down at his feet in desperation and he's pleading. And this is a risky business for Jairus. He's in this moment aligning himself with Jesus. Why is he doing it? Because he's run out of options. Well, let's read on. Verse 23. What does Jairus say? And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. It's such a powerful scene. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, we learn that that this is, in fact, Jairus' only daughter. And she's 12 years old. And just like any dad, here's Jairus. He's always been able to provide for her, but she's become ill. And she's become weaker, and she's become weaker. And undoubtedly, he's tried doctors and medicines and prayers, and, and now she's gasping for breath. And he is panicked. And he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about this teacher, and he runs. And you can just see him fighting through the crowd, pressing through the crowd. He falls at his feet and he's begging him. He's pleading with him. He's saying, Jesus, please, if there's any way, she's dying. She's, She's just about to die. She's gasping for breath. Please just lay your hands on her and heal her. And you can imagine the relief as Jesus just simply follows. And the crowd follows with him and they're pressing in. And it's in this moment that we meet our second character. Read with me verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. The second woman we meet or second person we meet is an outcast woman. You see, she had this discharge of blood. It's likely menstrual bleed. And she had it for 12 years. And she's broke. She is absolutely broke. She's spent everything she has on doctors. And even though she's spent it on doctors, she, she's grown worse and worse. She's suffering. She's tormented. She's dying. You see, you see the word there in Greek, she suffered much under physicians. That word suffered. Mastix, it means like whip or scourge, or torment. It's suffering plus shame. All in one. And that's what this woman is experiencing. Imagine constantly bleeding for 12 years. Imagine the shame. You know, I had a friend who had uh, severe ulcerative colitis, and he used to be constantly bleeding as well. And um, he was housebound for over a year because he couldn't go anywhere without worrying that someone would see him bleeding and he'd make a mess of himself. Just horrible, shameful, debilitating disease. But, but worse still, under Jewish law, she's unclean. And so this woman is socially outcast. 
in Leviticus 15, uh, 25, describes her situation exactly. It says this, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Hear this. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything she sits on shall be unclean as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. This woman's not just sick. She's unclean and she's excluded. Everything she touches, everything she sits on, everything she wears is unclean. Touch it, you're unclean. You're defiled. If this woman was married, she's now divorced. She's dead broke. She's dying, forbidden from the synagogue, outcast from her family, from her friends, from her neighbors. She's alone and she's desperate. Let's read on, verse 27. But she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Though she's breaking the law in being in the crowd and touching all these people, this is a desperate woman. And while Jairus comes before Jesus' face, this woman sneaks behind his back. While Jairus is the religious elite, this woman is the lowest of the low. She's outcast, and she touches just the corner of his cloak. In Jairus and the outcast woman, we see two desperate people. But more than that, we see point two, two examples of faith. You see, it's so easy to assume in life that God is more attentive to the needs of the super Christians, those really religious people, those people that have got it all together. And you might be sitting there thinking, Dave and Patrick and the pastoral team, right? And our wives are probably sitting here and thinking it's probably you are those people, those super religious people that are awesome Christians. But we know that in Christian life, not everyone does have the same faith, don't we, in our own experience. Not everyone has the same faith. There are degrees of faith. In fact, the disciples asked Jesus in Luke 17, 17 verse 5, they say, Lord, increase our faith. But here's where it hits. When you're going through difficulty... It can be easy to believe that the Lord is not answering your prayers simply because your faith is not strong enough. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like the problem is with me? Maybe for you, you've got a child who's not walking with the Lord. And you just think, if only I believed and, and prayed enough, then they would be. Maybe for you, it's chronic illness or infertility or a broken relationship. And you just think, Maybe the problem's me. Maybe if only I just prayed enough. Maybe I just don't believe enough. Maybe if I prayed harder, maybe if I prayed longer, then God would hear me and answer my prayer. Well, I want you to receive encouragement this morning from the example of these two people. And the first example we see is with the outcast woman. Verse 27 again. Why don't you read that with me? She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. This desperate woman comes from behind and just touches his garment. If I just touch it. See, this woman has this popular belief that was around in that time in the first century, and that is that powerful people could transmit power through touch. And so when we read this story, this woman, she doesn't have right theology. She's not coming to Jesus hoping for spiritual restoration. She's not 
looking to him as the Messiah to give her life to follow him, she's desperate. She's needy. And she sees Jesus. And she simply comes to him. This is genuine faith from a desperate woman. But it's not strong faith. It's weak faith. It's messy faith. See, what is on view here is not how strong her faith is, but it's the object of her faith. Look what happens. Verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Immediately this woman knows that she's healed. And she's hoping to save embarrassment. I mean, it's an embarrassing thing that's been happening to her. And, and so she's, she's hoping just that she can kind of just sneak away and no one will notice. But Jesus knows that someone has been healed. And he begins to look. And he's saying, who touched me? Who touched me? And Peter, it, it says in, in Luke's gospel, sees he's surrounded by all these people. He's like, what do you mean, Jesus? Who touched you? Like, everyone's pressing in on you. And you can imagine Jairus is standing there. And, and Jesus is now looking around who touched him. And Jairus is, is thinking, my daughter's almost dead. What are you doing? Why are we pausing? And this woman comes forward in fear and trembling, falls down at his feet and tells him everything. Read with me verse 34. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter. It's the only instance in the whole Bible where Jesus addresses someone as daughter. And it's to this woman. Daughter. It's the intimate language of family. Part of my family is what Jesus is saying. Your faith has made you well. Jesus says God has healed you in response to your faith. Healing wasn't magic. It wasn't in her touch. It was the faith that led to the touch that healed her. Weak faith. Messy faith. Genuine faith. Well, we now move to meet the second example of faith, and that is the example of the ruler of the synagogue. Read with me, verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble? the teacher, any further. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher? See, Jairus had come to Jesus not because he wanted to be a disciple. Not because he thought Jesus was the Messiah. He'd come at great risk to himself and he'd come because he was desperate. Why bother the teacher? You see, Jairus and the members of his household believed Jesus to be a teacher. They believed Jesus had supernatural healing powers. But what they did not believe was that this was God the Son who could raise the dead. The message is, Jairus, it's game over. Jairus, stop wasting his time. You're too late. You see, Jesus in this passage never commends Jairus for his faith. But what he does say to Jairus is this, verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Overhearing. This is a skillfully chosen word by Mark because it has a double meaning in this word, overhearing. It also means not just overhearing, but also ignoring. So Jesus, both overhearing and ignoring what the messenger says, says to Jairus, don't be afraid, Jairus. Just believe in me. The question is, why does Jesus need to say this? Why does Jesus need to tell this man not to be afraid? Why does he tell him, just believe? And the answer is, 
Because he is afraid. And because he's struggling to believe. He's in shock. He's freaking out. He's despairing. Because this is a picture of weak faith. Messy faith. Genuine faith. Well, in summary, in the outcast woman and the ruler of the synagogue, we don't see perfect examples of strong faith. We simply see genuine faith. Why? Well, because what's on view is not the strength of their faith. It's the grace and compassion of this divine king. And that brings us to our third point. Two desperate people, two examples of faith. Point three, one divine king. Read with me from verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion and people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And they laughed at him. It's this great scene for a significant man. There's likely professional mourners playing flutes and commotion and people who are hired to to weep and wail and family. And people are being affected by the death of this 12-year-old girl. And they're wailing. And they're crying. And there's a commotion. And Jesus says, she's just sleeping. And they mock him. They say, you're an idiot. You know, we can so easily think that ancient people are like somehow gullible. But here they're not. They're cynical. The cold, hard facts of death are before them. And, and it seems so permanent. You know, last year we mourned the loss of a former member of this church who was a, a friend of mine. I lived with him for a couple of years. He was a great man, a, a big man, uh, Richard, and... Um, tragically uh, died from a drug overdose, leaving behind a nine-month-year-old, uh, nine-month pregnant wife. And uh, it was, it was a, a tragedy. And I just, I just remember being at the uh, funeral and uh, all this crowd of mourners being away around and, and the bagpipes playing Amazing Grace as they marched this huge coffin out. And just a... a picture of grief and a picture of just the permanence of death. You can't just bring him back. What does Jesus mean? She's not dead. She's only sleeping. Well, this is it. He means this. As easy as it is for you to wake up someone from a nap, that's how easy it will be for me to raise this dead girl. And so we read on in the story, and they laughed at him, but he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking around, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. I mean, picture the scene. There's these few people and family gathered around her lifeless body. There's, there's no incantations, no prayers, no multiple words. Simply, Jesus says, get up, little girl. Talitha. In Aramaic, it actually means lamb, which is kind of like slang for like a, a cute little girl, kind of like sweetie or something like that. And Jesus just looks at her and says, sweetie, get up. And it's such a powerful scene, such a a vivid memory for Peter that Mark records Jesus' exact words. They resonate so clearly in his mind. It says they were amazed, literally, in verse 26, they were amazed with great amazement. It's like they run out of words to see how amazing this scene is. Something that is so easy for Jesus, as simple as waking up someone from a nap. Why is it here? Why has Mark recorded this passage here? Well, I think Mark has placed, I put to you that Mark has placed this passage here for for three different reasons that point to this divine king. Three different 
aspects of who this divine king is that he's revealing to us. And the first is that it reveals the power and authority of this divine king. You know, if you think Jesus is bearded, little lamb Jesus, nicey-nicey Jesus, meek and mild but powerless, your perspective, it's, it's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says about, him, about Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. He's the divine king. He's the son of God. And in the beginning, he, he made it all. We were looking at creation even this morning in SG College. And in Colossians 1.15, Paul writes it this way. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You would have seen a regular man in Jesus. But by the the word of his mouth, the universe continues to survive. A simple word, and the earth could cease to exist. Life and death are in his hands. And he is showing us that he has the power to raise even his own life, because he holds the power of life and death. But secondly, not only it reveals the power and authority of the divine king, but it reveals the kingdom that he's bringing in. You know, uh, this past week, actually, at, at work at, at hospital, I worked part-time as a physio in a hospital, and I was with this elderly man who was a patient, and I um, took him back into his room, and I just, he was sitting down, and he looked a bit down, and I said to him, look, how are you going? How are you doing? And this man looked at me and, and said, look, my life probably at the moment reflects the words of a song, Old Man River. I was like, well, I, I've never heard of that before. And so he literally sang me the last verse of the song. And the words just, just resonated with me, just really touched me. The words go like this. I get weary and so sick of trying. I'm tired of living and afraid of dying. But Old Man River keeps rolling on. Old Man River keeps rolling on. I just cut me to the heart. I just kind of feel like I just want to tell you about Jesus. You don't need to be afraid of dying. And here's this old man facing his end. And he's afraid. And it's hopeless. And he's just plodding on, waiting for it all to end. It's a picture of the hopelessness of the world that we live in without Jesus. And Jesus is pointing us to this beautiful hope we have in him, the hope of resurrection. You see, we live in a world in rebellion. Back at the very beginning, our forefathers, they turned their back on God and they said, God, we do not wish to live for you. We want to be the masters of our own destiny. We want to live for ourselves and we've been doing it ever since. And though the punishment that we deserve is eternal death at the hands of our maker who made us and owes us nothing, he sent his son for us, Jesus, the man, the king of whom we're reading about this morning, who come, who came and, and as a man humbled himself to walk towards the cross and die on our behalf. The death we deserved, he paid in full upon that cross that simply through changing our mind and putting our faith in him, repentance and faith, changing our mind and just simply saying, I don't want to be the master of my own destiny. Lord, I want to follow you and I trust you for what you've done for me at the cross. Simply through faith and repentance, we can, we can be made one with God. We can know and enjoy him and, and we can have the hope of this new kingdom that's coming, a kingdom of resurrection. You know, just before Jesus raised Lazarus, he had this conversation with uh, his sister Martha. Lazarus was another friend of Jesus. And um, Jesus, just before he raises Lazarus, who's died from the dead, he's been dead four days, he sits and he speaks with his, his, uh, Lazarus's sister Martha. And he says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet he shall live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus has the power over life and death. Jesus holds our future. The message of the gospel is death will not be the end for you. You will be raised back to life forever with God, physically. Everyone, Jesus says, who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, I think we can sometimes be guilty of, you know, for me, living like functional atheists. We say we believe in the all-powerful divine Jesus, but we live like he's still in the grave. We live as though he's dead. And the fruit is we're anxious about many things and we cling to our money and our possessions and we live as though there's no life after this. This is it, so I have to live and enjoy it. And I mean, for me, it was such a classic example with the Going Forward Fund. It's like, oh, like, it's like, oh do I really believe this? That, that, that this is not a waste to give my things to the, thing, to, to the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus gives us a taste of what's to come, our future resurrection with him, life for eternity to come. But, but more than that, more than just revealing his power and authority over life and death, more than just, just revealing the kingdom that he's bringing in, thirdly, it reveals his grace to those who come to him. You know, I think as Christians, we, we often misunderstand what maturity is. You know, our culture and even sometimes our church culture values things like intellect and competency and wealth and efficiency. And so we fill our lives with so many different things and often we find we have so little time and we live often as though we don't need God and, and we just kind of trust ourselves and our talents. And in our busy lives, maturity then becomes the super-disciplined. You know, those who can cram prayer and Bible reading into their full schedules. But this is, it's, it's not biblical. That's worldly way of thinking. That's confusing our culture with the Bible and our faith. Because maturity, mature Christianity is not strength. It's a growing knowledge of our neediness in light of the cross. A mature Christian sees their sinful nature and their weaknesses and as a result has a deep sense of their need for Christ. They pray more, yes, but, but only because they, they know they just can't face the day without his help. They read the Bible more, yes, but, but only because they need to hear from him more just to get through the day. And the example of Jairus and the woman is so powerful at this point. You see, They didn't have it all together. They didn't have strong faith. They weren't even theologically informed. They knew they needed help. And they simply came to Jesus. And what they received is grace. Paul Miller puts it this way. He says, the very thing we are afraid of, our brokenness, is the door to our Father's heart. And that's so true. We're so afraid of our brokenness and yet it's the very key to the heart of our Father. You know, if you're, if you're aware this morning of your brokenness and your failings where you've not been the wife that you should have been or the husband that you should have been or the friend that you should have been or the follower of Jesus that you should have been, don't be afraid. You're beginning to see yourself clearly. You need grace. And just like Jairus... And the outcast woman, all you need to do is simply come to him. All the healing, all the comfort, all the life, all the help, all the grace you need, you'll find with him. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the faithfulness of the one who is your strength. Come as you are. Come weary come broken, come doubting, find grace. 
In our passage this morning, we've seen two desperate people with two examples of faith, examples that have served to magnify the all-powerful Jesus. So church, let's draw near to the all-powerful Son of God who responds with grace to even the weakest of faith. Let's pray. Lord, we, we just come before your throne this morning and for many of us, we're aware that our week has been marked by weakness and failings and anxieties. And Lord, how kind of you then that you are the giver of grace. How great then that, that it's not about the measure of our faith, but about your faithfulness. It's not about how strong we are, but about your strength meeting our weakness. Lord, help us to ever rely on you and your cross. And praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I love that quote at the end. The very thing we're aware of, our brokenness is the door to the Father's heart. How beautiful is that? Christianity isn't a profession. It's not something we have to be professional at. In some ways we just have to be broken and realize we need thee, we need thee every hour. Otherwise we're not going to make it. Let's stand together. And I want us to worship the Lamb of God again. The one to whom we always look.
forgive us for the many times in our lives when we pursue other things as if we perceive them to be greater more worthy of praise, more worthy of our time, more worthy of our affection and yet as we sit under your word as we sing to you we realize you're the greatest thing in all our lives there is no greater So, Lord, you do help us to sit at your feet and to gaze at your love, to make sense of our own lives as we sit at your feet, making sense of your love. Would our perspective of you be a real one? And would it inform each and every day of our lives for your glory? For there is no greater love. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Our friends, would we live in the good of us? We live it out, amazed by grace. There is no greater love. Have a great week.